Last evening, the career ended for one of the most polarizing figures in American sports. If you're a college basketball fan, you are aware that last night was Mike Krzyzewski's final game as the head coach of the Duke University Blue Devils. Now, I am an alumnus, some of you know, of, of Duke University. I went down there in the fall of 2003 um, and quickly found myself in the middle of Durham, North Carolina, and I began to realize something very quickly. As it was true then and is largely true now, if you're a college basketball fan, you have an opinion on Duke University. You either love them or you hate them. There is very little middle ground when it comes to Duke University and to their head coach, who was Mike Krzyzewski. Now, it wasn't always like this for Duke University or for Mike Krzyzewski. But what happened was, because Duke University, particularly in the 1990s and the early 2000s, was so successful when it came to college basketball, and because Mike Krzyzewski reached such a height of prominence, of influence in the sport, people were forced into polls. You love them or you hate them. It's like, if you're a sports fan, the Yankees. You love the Yankees or you hate the Yankees. You are polarized. Now, that's not just true of sports. It's true of political figures. I could name names of politicians that all of us would know, both Democrats and Republicans. And there are hardly anyone in this country who hasn't heard of them. Everyone has heard of these political figures, and they are almost universally either loved or hated. There is not a middle ground. There is no neutrality. You say, I like them or I loathe them. That is just how our world works. Today, if I were to say the name of Vladimir Putin, a man who is bringing great uh, injury and loss to an entire country, I would say that most of us would either have a, a strong opinion, to some he is loved, to some he is despised. That is just the nature of what it is to be polarized, to be split into poles. But there is one person who is the most uniquely polarizing figure in all of human history, to whom Vladimir Putin, to whom Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton, to whom Mike Krzyzewski, to whom any other person in history pales in comparison to the polarization. And that person is Jesus of Nazareth. There has never been a more polarizing person than Jesus of Nazareth who has forced people into very different views of who he is and how he is to be treated. And this is because of who he was and what he came claiming about himself. He came claiming to be the king. And we have seen this about him, haven't we, from the very beginning of this book. We have just been marching methodically through the gospel of Mark together. And from the very beginning, John Mark identifies him as the one effectively who is the king. He says this is the herald, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the chosen one of God, the son of God. And we have been confronting Jesus' claims to be king throughout this entire book. He says the kingdom of God, this was the message that he came preaching, repent, because the kingdom of God is at hand. What does that mean? 
the kingdom is at hand because the king is here. The king, Jesus of Nazareth. And we have been seeing throughout this book, haven't we, the king exercising his sovereign authority. As king, he is exercising his authority over doctrine, the word of God and his teaching. He has been exercising authority over demonic influence, casting out those who have been demonically afflicted. He is exercising his authority over disease. He is eradicating illness from those who come to him. And as we'll see later, he even is exercising his authority over the natural world. He is calming storms. He is making waves to be at peace. And people are astonished at the authority of this humble man from northern Israel, the province of Galilee. And as we've been seeing over the last several weeks, he's starting to get polarizing. Some people are crowding him, desiring to hear him. Other people are already setting up opposition against him, even the Pharisees who have now decided that they want to terminate him. He is a threat to them. And the simple point is this. Jesus has always been a polarizing figure. And if we rightly understand who he is and what he claims to be, he is a polarizing figure even today. And from this passage, these few short verses from Mark chapter 3, verses 20, um, verses 20 through 27, I'd like to speak this morning on the simple topic, responses to Jesus then and now. Responses to Jesus then and now. And ultimately, I'll conclude by asking you what your response to Jesus has been and is. We're going to start, first of all, by looking at the response of those who were nearest to Jesus. Now, last week we talked about the disciples of Jesus. Jesus called his disciples around and chose 12 of them, and they were to be the ones who were with him. And we looked at each of these names last week, and I hope you were encouraged and helped by those disciples who frankly look a lot like us in their character, in their weaknesses, in their challenges, and yet those 12 people, really 11 minus Judas Iscariot, turned the world upside down. But this week, I want us to see something very unique. Look with me at verse number 20. At verse number 20, if you have your Bibles, again, I encourage you to have them open with us this morning or in whatever format you have them. Verse number 20. And the multitude cometh together again so that they could not so much as eat bread. Now, who is the they? Well, go back to the last verse, verse 19. And they, the disciples of Jesus, went into a house. So imagine again, Jesus and his disciples go into a house together. This may very well have been Peter's house that we looked at before. It may have been the house where Jesus healed the paralyzed man who had been let down through the roof. Maybe they patched up the roof, got it fixed up. But whatever it is, they're in a house and the multitude just descends back on that house. And it is so much so that Jesus and his disciples could not even find a break to eat Have you ever been so busy that you feel like you can't even take care of your basic necessities? 
There's not time to sleep. There's not time to eat. There's not time to take care of yourselves. There's not time to exercise. This, you know then what Jesus is dealing with. And he's not just dealing with the daily business. Imagine day after day, a multitude crowding your house, wanting to hear you speak, wanting to touch you so that they could have a taste of your power to heal their diseases or their ailments. This was such a crushing crowd clamoring on Jesus. Now, one thing that we're going to see about this crowd ultimately as we continue on through the narrative was that they were a pretty self-interested crowd. They wanted to take from Jesus. They wanted to see what Jesus could give to them, but ultimately they were not willing to give back to him. Some of these same ones may have been part of the crowd in Jerusalem one day shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And we always must be aware of this response to Jesus. Because in any age, there will be those who seek to align themselves, connect themselves to Jesus, only to see what they can get from him. Do you know there are those even that are pastors of churches, prominent evangelists appearing on your television. And business is great for them. They're walking around in $500 sneakers, $1,000 Gucci's. They are, they are um, driving luxury vehicles. They have private aircraft. Business is great for those who are identifying with Jesus in certain circles. If you think about it, how often throughout history has Jesus been simply a figurehead on someone else's ship? He can be used in politics. We're the Jesus party. He can be used on social issues. This is the Jesus social issue. He can be used for prosperity. He can be used in business. We're the Christian company. That's our marketing ploy. And ultimately, Jesus just becomes a tool for someone to get what they want. Well, of course, this isn't the response that Jesus is looking for. But you can imagine the curiosity and the crush of this crowd seeking to come to this miraculous healer and receive of his power. Beware. Beware of that kind of response to Jesus. But then notice the next, not only those that are near to him in the crowd, but those that are near to him in his personal life. Look at the response in verse number 21. And when his friends heard of it, they went out to lay hold on him, for they said, he is beside himself. Now this word friends here, it's not actually literally in our Greek text. The way the Greek text is, is simply to say, those that were beside him, those that were next to him. And so our translators here have interpreted that to mean his friends, but it could also just as well be his family. In fact, some people believe that is the, really what the Greek is getting at here. The idea is that those that were closest to him, those that were near him, those that were right next to him. In fact, we see if you were to scan your eyes down to verse number 31, Mark seems to be telling kind of a sandwich story here. And verse 31 says, Then came there, there came then his brethren and his mother, and standing without sent unto him, calling him. 
This may have been part of what Mark is referring to here back in verse 21. That is, his, those closest to him, perhaps even his own relatives, perhaps his friends, are seeking to have an audience with him. And why do they want to have an audience with him? They said, he is beside himself. Now again, this is a very interesting phrase. He is beside himself. Do you know what this literally means? It means he is outside of himself. Say, what does that mean? He is outside of himself. Well, if we were going to say it popularly, you'd just say, he's out of his mind. He's out of his mind. That was really what they were saying. They were claiming that he had lost it. Something was wrong with him. You say, now why were they getting this? Well, do you know what we would call this in our day and age today? We'd call it an intervention. Perhaps you've been a part of an intervention or perhaps there's been an intervention on your behalf when those closest to someone see someone they love who is suddenly seeming to be controlled perhaps by alcohol or other substances, some kind of mental instability or imbalance and those that are closest to them say, we need to get you help. And what happens here is Jesus is now the one who is at the center of this presumed intervention. They are coming to him. He is out of his mind. And the word that they use here, they went out to lay hold on him. Do you know that word is used elsewhere in in Mark to mean arrested? They came out literally to take hold, to arrest him, to grab him, to say, Jesus, come to your senses. Now, is that the way that you think those closest to Jesus would likely have responded? What does that say to you that those who were closest to the king in this life were those who at this stage of his life were coming to him saying, what are you thinking? You can't even get a decent meal. Don't you want to reevaluate how you're spending your time and what you're doing? Now, was this solely out of concern for Jesus? It, it, it may have been. It may have been a motherly kind of, oh, I, my son is just too busy right now. He needs to get some rest. But we also know something from John chapter 7. John chapter 7 says at this time in his ministry, even his own brothers didn't believe in him. They didn't believe in him. So there may have been, I think, whether it was out of concern or control or something else, can you imagine his family and those closest to him recognizing that they were being identified with him? They were the ones who would be saying, whoa, our brother's getting really popular. Our brother's on the outside of the religious elite. Our brother's making a name for himself, and we're not sure we like this association. We're not sure we like this connection with Jesus. Let's go lay hold on him and bring him out of this situation, and let's exercise some control to intervene for a brother who we don't quite understand. Now, do you know this response is also similar to how many respond to Jesus even today. There are those who don't have too much of a concern with some of the things that Jesus said, but they don't want to be identified with him. They do not want to be identified ultimately as a Christ follower, as one submitting to him. It would be easier for them to push him aside, to try to control him, to say, 
I am not submitting ultimately to you. In fact, those who are Christians have seen the same thing. The people who told a man like C.T. Studd, you're crazy. Who was C.T. Studd? C.T. Studd was a man who left a fortune, a family fortune. He was one of the most prominent athletes in England in his day in the game of cricket. He was a very educated man at Cambridge, and he left all of it behind, giving away nearly every penny to spend his life as a missionary in China, in India, in Africa. And you can imagine the people responding to him, you're crazy. Have you lost your mind? Jim Elliott and Nate Saint and those who went down to minister to the Alka Indians, unreached peoples, and were martyred, were killed for the faith, and yet in their martyrdom, bringing out themselves a stream of missionaries inspired by their example. Jim Elliott says he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. A worldling would look at Jim Elliott and say, what are you, a fool? And Jim Elliott would say, I'm no fool. I am giving what I cannot keep to gain what I cannot lose. In every age, those who follow Christ, who respond to his messages, will receive that kind of question, have you lost your mind? And Jesus himself is receiving this response. But notice not just the response of those who are near to him, but notice the response of those who are far from him. Look next at verse number 22. And the scribes which came down from Jerusalem said, He hath Beelzebub, and by the prince of the devils casteth he out devils. Now, who were these people? They were the scribes, so they were the religious teachers, the religious leaders, the religious elite of that day, and they came down from Jerusalem. Now, you need to get this. Jerusalem was actually way south of Galilee. Some, usually when we say we go down, we're thinking we're going south. Well, they just meant they went down from Jerusalem because Jerusalem was the elevated city. Wherever you went from Jerusalem, you went down. So that's why they're saying they went down, even though in a map they went up. To Galilee. But these, so these scribes are not a part of this area. They're coming to him because they're curious, but not just because they're curious, ultimately because they're opposed to him. Notice the example that they give, what they say about his teaching, about his miraculous works. They can't deny it. They can't deny that divine power or some kind of supernatural powers at work, but they're not willing to attribute it to God. So what do they say? They attribute it to the devil. Now, who is Beelzebub? If you were to go back into the Old Testament to 2 Kings chapter 1, you would find that Beelzebub was a pagan god in the Old Testament that people even in Israel would worship. The name means the Lord of Flies. Now, the people of Jesus' day, the Philistines, the Pharisees, I should say, not the Philistines, the Pharisees used this word, Beelzebub, to refer derisively to Satan. Beelzebub, the Lord of flies, the Lord of filth, the Lord of waste. And so what are they saying? They are saying that Jesus has aligned himself with Satan. And the only reason he has this supernatural power is because he has made a deal with the devil, we would say. 
Now, frankly, this is absurd. Just put it, frankly, it's absurd. And Jesus exposes it as being absurd. It doesn't make sense. Why would Satan align himself with someone who is casting out Satan from people? Just ponder that one for a minute. Notice what Jesus says in verse number 23. And he, Jesus, called them unto him and said unto them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? That's a pretty good rhetorical question, isn't it? Does this make any sense? He says, and if a kingdom be divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house be divided against itself, that house cannot stand. Now, what's he saying? If you were to have a military force on behalf of your country, and half of your army was fighting against the other half of that army, you wouldn't be a very effective military force. Your army could not stand and unite against Invaders, if you are working against each other, you can't succeed. A house, a husband and a wife that are actively working to destroy each other in their marriage, I can promise you that house won't remain a house for very much longer. Whenever we are divided internally, our loyalties are divided. We're not set up for success. And notice here, If Satan rise up against himself and be divided, he cannot stand but hath an end. No man can enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he will first bind the strong man, and then he will spoil his house. Next week, I want to get into more about that particular verse and the idea that it is setting up between two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. But let's just stop here. The the Pharisees were saying things that just frankly didn't make sense. Now, do you know this is true even of today? There are people who are very wise and very educated and very learned who believe, who are willing to believe some really crazy things. There are the people today, I've heard some today say, uh, speculate that they don't believe in God, but they do wonder whether we're in a computer simulation today, like some big computer program, and we're all programmed, and some great civilization in the future is just kind of making us as robots to go through life. I think, okay, you, you disbelieve in a God with the evidence of order and creation, but you believe we might be just computer simulators, And I think of Romans chapter 1 that says, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. The people who cannot see the nature of God and the reality of God in everything that they see around them, but they are willing to believe, frankly, the most foolish things. And here, these Pharisees cannot accept what is directly in front of them. Here is a person who is going and actively seeking to oppose the work of Satan in the world, healing people who have been bound by disease, and their response is, it's got to be Satan. No, they had become fools by their own bondage. And we can simply say this, friends. Those who faithfully follow Christ should not be surprised to be slandered in this world, even with absurd character and treatment. We should not be surprised because Jesus warned us. He said in the book of, uh, uh, he, he said, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. 1 John 3 says, marvel not, my brethren, don't be surprised 
if the world hates you. When we align ourselves with Jesus Christ, we should expect to receive the same kind of treatment, the same kind of responses that Jesus received, whether that's have you lost your mind or whether it is you're evil, you're hateful, you're aligned with the forces of wickedness in the world, not with the forces of good. So notice these two very unique reactions. Those closest to him are either clamoring to try to get something from him or want, not wanting to be identified with him, trying to grab hold of him and control him and say, let's get this under control. And then those that are farthest from him now openly opposing him and slandering him and identifying his work with the forces of evil, not with the forces of good. Now what does this mean for us today. I want to close thirdly by looking at the response that is required of us. The response that is required of us. The response of those who are near to him. The response of those that were far from him. The response that is required of us. Well, I just wanted to point out one simple fact. What was common to the response of all three of these groups? Those that were nearest to him trying to get something from him. Those that were nearest of him trying to take him under control. Those that were far from him slandering him. What was common to all of them? It was this. There was a response. Do you know what response we almost never see in our Gospels to Jesus of Nazareth? Apathy. Do you know what response we almost never see to Jesus of Nazareth in our Gospels? Neutrality. Why? Because Jesus, by his nature, if you understand who he is and what his claims are, is polarizing. There has never been someone more polarizing. He was the one who came and said in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And in doing so, he made the most polarizing claim in human history. I am the pathway to God, and there is no other he said in Matthew 25, one day the king is going to come back in his glory with the holy angels and he is going to judge everyone according to their works. A human being saying, I'm the king and I'm coming back to judge everyone who has ever lived. That's a polarizing claim. <coughs> Excuse me, it forces you either to accept it or reject it. This is why I'm suggesting to you this morning that there is no such neutrality when it comes to Jesus of Nazareth. If you are truly to understand the claims that he made, Jesus said in Luke 11, he that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth. You cannot be neutral when it comes to Jesus of Nazareth. One person who understood this very well was a man named C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis, you may know from writing the, uh, the, the Narnia set of books. You may know him from his apologetics ministry. Some of you perhaps have read Mere Christianity, a book I recommend for strengthening the foundations of your faith. C.S. Lewis understood something about Jesus. Listen to what he says. He says, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, about Jesus. 
I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Here's what C.S. Lewis says. That is the one thing we must not say. We must not say, I'm willing to accept him as a good moral teacher, but not as God. Why does he say that? He said, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. He says, it seems obvious that he, it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. What did the people closest to him say? Jesus, you're out of your mind. You're out of your mind. You're crazy. Let's get you under control. What did those farthest from him say? He's aligned himself with the devil. He's evil. What did his disciples say? I don't think he's a lunatic. And I don't think he's a liar. So that means he must be Lord. See, what is the reasonable response to the one who claims I'm the only way to God? I'm going to be the judge of all men. I am the king of God's kingdom here on earth. What is the only reasonable response? It is polarizing. It is to accept it with all your heart or it is to reject it with equally all of your heart. You see, I respect much more a man or a woman who says to me, I, I have investigated your claims and I wholly reject them. I find them nonsense. I respect that far more than the person who says, I'm willing to let you believe whatever you believe. Uh, Jesus seems like a decent enough guy to me. I'm happy to have you have that. But you know what? I'm, I'm not too concerned about him. You can't have it that way. Jesus didn't intend to leave it for us that way. What is reasonable for us, friends? What is reasonable for the way that we relate to the one who came claiming to be the king? Well, first of all, this morning, what is the response required from all of us? Well, what is the response required before a king? What does a king require? We have a hard time of this, don't we, in the United States of America? I think it's a uniquely difficult thing for us sometimes to accept because over 200 years ago, we overthrew a king. We said, I don't want to have a king. Never again will we have a king. We didn't want to submit. And indeed, there is a uniquely American aspect of us that does not want to submit, that does not like submitting to anyone, much less to a God who says this is how you are to behave. How do you respond to a king? You respond to a king by submitting. You respond to a king by bowing your knee and saying what you desire, not what I desire. You respond to a king by giving yourself to him. The Apostle Paul recognized this in Romans chapter 12. He said, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies, 
your bodies, everything of you, a living sacrifice. Put it on the altar. Sacrifice. This is yours. Holy, acceptable unto God. And he goes on to add, which is your reasonable service. What is reasonable for the one who came to give himself entirely for you? What is reasonable for the one who is the king who has forgiven you of all your sin and and ensured you an eternal future? What is reasonable for the one who seeks to give you his life to live the way he called you? The only reasonable thing is to put all on the altar and say, I'm yours. The only reasonable thing is to bow your knee to his sovereign desires for your life and say, I am in your hands to do as you wish. Anything else is unreasonable. What happened to those who were closest to him? They were happy to receive from Jesus in their self-interest, but ultimately they were not willing to bow the knee to him. What about his family and his friends, those who sought to take control of him and bring control back to their family? They were not willing to bow the knee to him until thankfully some of his brothers like James and Jude followed him and believed on him after he was resurrected. What about those who were furthest from him? They were not willing to bow the knee. He was a threat to their authority. Friends, it's simply this. If we are to accept, if we are to enter the kingdom of God, we must accept the king himself. We must bow the knee. Have you bowed the knee before Jesus today? Have you truly, humbly knelt before him and and said, I accept you as my king? If not, you are outside the kingdom of God because to enter the kingdom is to is to be required that you must accept the king. But also I say this to you who have accepted the king this morning. You know that you have entered the kingdom of God by faith in Jesus Christ. What I want to ask you today is are you having a life that is polarizing because it is submitted to the king? One of the worst things that we as Christians can do can live such a milk toast, such a non-offensive kind of life that everyone is just very content with what we believe. But Jesus didn't intend it to be that way. Did he intend us to be polarizing based on a lack of good character? Did he intend us to be polarizing because we are rude and violating societal norms? Did he intend us to be polarizing because we just frankly are difficult to get along with? No! We are to be known for our love and our meekness and our humility and our generosity and our care. But he intended us no less to be polarizing because anyone who bows his knee before the king and says, I'm living for a kingdom that's not of this world, not the one that is of this world, is going to be polarizing. Any person who lives for an eternal future in Jesus Christ, not a temporary one on this life, is going to force the people around him to decide as to that same central question, who is Jesus and what does he require of me? If we are Christ followers, if we are exemplifying the character of Jesus Christ in our lives, we should not be surprised that on the one hand, we attract those who want to kneel before the king as well, while at the same time, we repel those who are more comfortable assigning Jesus as a liar, as a lunatic, 
as a legend, but certainly not as Lord. The response to Jesus then and now is to be polarizing. And one day, friends, there will be the ultimate polarizing choice, the ultimate polarizing revelation when the king stands and judges all men. In fact, Scripture tells us that at one day, every knee will bow before Jesus. Some will be as their king, and some will be those who have never accepted him as king and now ultimately are doomed for eternity. May our response to the king be the one that he desires, submission. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus, the ultimate polarizing figure, because he came to establish the kingdom of God that can be entered only by faith in him, by humbly accepting his claims. This is not a popular message. It will never be. But, oh, I pray, Father, that if there's even one person here or within the sound of my voice who has never accepted the king, who has never bowed the knee before him and accepted his claims by faith, may today be the day that they enter the kingdom of God. And I pray for those of us who do profess to be Christ followers, may we bow the knee before him daily. May we live the lives that force those around us to see the difference and to choose to accept or reject the king themselves. Let's pause for a moment and allow the Holy Spirit to speak to our hearts. How would God have us apply this word to ourselves?